0: Hello. In today's show, an appeal for Afghanistan's neighbours to keep their borders open after the Taliban takeover, an interview with UN Children's Fund UNICEF on the Afghan boys and girls risking everything on harrowing migration journeys, and an alert over far too low Covid vaccination rates across Africa. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch Up Dateline Geneva. Thanks for listening. First, the news with Katie Dartford.
1: In Afghanistan, the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, has repeated its call to neighbouring states to keep their borders open to those fleeing the country. Around 3.5 million people are internally displaced, and many of those wishing to cross into Pakistan or Iran may not have the documents they need. Here's the UNHCR spokesperson Andrzej Mehečić speaking in Geneva.
0: Those leaving Afghanistan may nevertheless have international protection needs. And those wishing to cross may also be unable to do so without passport and visa documentation. Hence our call on the countries neighboring Afghanistan to keep their borders open and allow those who may be at risk to seek safety. And we are ready to support the humanitarian needs of those people and the response of those countries.
1: Pakistan has hosted Afghan refugees for decades, with 1.4 million registered, while this has posed significant pressures on Pakistani authorities and host communities. The UN agency said on Tuesday that it remained ready to help scale up the response to humanitarian needs. Dementia is a growing global problem that affects tens of millions of people, but it is not inevitable, the World Health Organization said on Thursday, as it issued an urgent call for countries to focus on prevention measures to avoid being overwhelmed. Data from the UN Health Agency covering three-quarters of the world's population indicated that more than 55 million people live with illness. This number is estimated to rise to 139 million by 2050, said WHO's Dr. katrin Sia from the Department of Mental Health and Substance Use.
2: We're far from being able to cure dementia. So at this stage, and I think that's why it's so important to prepare health and social care systems, we do need to provide care and support uh, to enable people who have dementia to live as independently as possible. And with the right amount of support, support, that is truly possible."
1: Dr. Sia insisted that dementia was not an inevitable part of aging, and that measures to prevent cognitive decline in later years should be employed by countries now. These include promoting education and tackling depression, said the WHO, which warned that only a quarter of the world's countries have a national policy for supporting people with dementia and their families. Eight in ten African countries are set to miss the goal of vaccinating the most vulnerable 10% of their populations against COVID-19 by the end of September. In an alert from the World Health Organization, it said that 42 of Africa's 54 nations needed to speed up vaccination deliveries and getting shots in people's arms if they're to achieve the 10% threshold. Nine African countries have already reached the target, including South Africa, Morocco and Tunisia. The UN agency explained that while many African countries have sped up coronavirus jabs as vaccine shipments increased in August, 26 countries have used less than half of their COVID-19 vaccines. Across Africa, COVID-19 infections are declining slightly but remain stubbornly high, the WHO said. Noting a rising number of new cases in Central, East and West Africa a more than 5,500. 100 deaths in the week ending on the 29th of August. Katie Dartford, UN News.
0: Thanks to Katie Dartford for the news and here she is again with this week's interview with UN Children's Fund UNICEF, which has issued an alert that more unaccompanied girls and boys are on the move today than ever. And would you believe it, the highest number of unaccompanied children seeking asylum in Europe come from Afghanistan, as we'll hear now from UNICEF's Verena Knaus.
2: All of the world today is looking at Afghanistan, at the news, where we are facing a country with 18 million people in humanitarian need, half of them being children, millions on the brink of a famine, given the drought of the last years, water shortages, medical shortages. And then you go back and think, okay, how come that we are all worried now about Afghan girls, Afghan women and the future for them in the country? And we've been sitting by and watching a situation where 9 in 10 unaccompanied children from Afghanistan seeking protection in Europe have been boys. And of course, this really forces us, I think, to ask some uncomfortable question. Where can girls get protection? Is there a level playing field for boys and girls in the world to seek and access international protection? Is Afghanistan really just the odd exception, or is this a place in the case around the world? And how much do we know about equity and inequality between boys and girls on the move? But really, there are many, many blind spots. If we want to understand and respond to places like Afghanistan today, we need to address these blind spots.
1: Can you tell me where exactly in Afghanistan people are leaving from, and and have you had any contact with the Taliban?
2: the taliban on the ground has actually asked us in areas where we can continue to work to continue and provide those basic humanitarian services we will continue to do so we have been there we would stay we want to deliver for every child we have at the moment 13 offices nationwide that continue to deliver life-saving supplies um, and we have a constructive dialogue with local interlocutors of the taliban to allow us to scale up our response where it is most needed, to reach as many girls and boys as we can. But the needs are so great. We cannot do it alone. With over 18 million people in need of humanitarian assistance, we need to get together. And we ourselves at the moment still have a funding requirement of nearly 192 million US dollars just to provide that life-saving assistance to those vulnerable children in need. So we will need to work together, we will need to stay, we will need to deliver. There is a bigger country and there are many more people in need that are not leaving and they need our support.
1: What did you find out about the reasons or the differences between girls and boys as to why they're leaving? It starts with
2: expectations at home and decision-making. So very often migration decision-making itself is already gendered and influenced by gendered expectations, different roles and responsibilities that boys or girls play. Very often, many country contexts, boys are expected to be the main breadwinners, to in a way be the family's insurance policy. So a family takes the decision to send a boy from Ghana or Somalia or Sudan abroad to earn money for the family. Girls very often are not expected to play this role, but for many girls in other contexts, and this is particularly the case in Somalia or Eritrea, where we find proportionally high numbers of girls moving alone even, it is very often that migration presents a way out of forced marriage or a tactic to delay marriage. So the motivations why boys and girls move are very different. But then, of course, also the roots and the way they move are different. So for example, boys are much more likely to migrate longer distances and leave countries, cross borders. Girls are much more likely to move within countries. This again has to do with girls wanting to be closer to home or their journeys being perceived to just too dangerous for girls. So boys are expected to, you know, make it through the Sahara on the way to Europe or be able to cross Iran and Turkey and reach Greece. Whereas, of course, these journeys we know, they are often horrific and fraught with enormous risks are not considered safe, and they aren't safe. Then, of course, we also have, when it comes to trafficking and exploitation, huge gendered differences. It is quite shocking, I think, to recall that girls outnumber boys four to three among those who have been identified as victims of trafficking. And in particular, of course, girls are being trafficked for sexual exploitation, whereas boys much more likely, much more often for labor. But generally, we are seeing a trend that is very concerning, that the number of children among trafficking victims has doubled since 2004. Now, of course, data has been improving at the same time, but it is telling that the fewer migration pathways that are available, that are safe, and that are accessible to children and boys, and the more economic pressure is on a country, on a society, we've seen that again in COVID, actually the greater the risks for children to become victims of trafficking.
1: So now that you have a bit more information about what's happening, what's the next step? What's the way forward? I think most importantly is we want this report to spark discussion. So as UNICEF itself,
2: we will take the report to try and see what more we can do to address our own blind spots, whether that is in a response to forced displacement in contexts like Afghanistan or Sudan or elsewhere, where we are rapidly trying to scale up uh, better availability of gender-sensitive, gender-responsive services, for example, for sexual and gender-based violence or mental health services for girls and boys that are taking into account their specific needs. But we also, of course, want other partners to do the same. So across the UN system, how can we take these findings as a moment of reflection and say, okay, we have a lot of debates, especially over the past few years, about who is a migrant, who is a refugee, who is an IDP. But little has been spent on looking a little closer and actually pulling the curtains back and saying, Okay, behind a refugee or a migrant, there's always agenda, gender and there's always an edge. So what is it that we really need to do in order to respond better? And if we are seeing these highly skewed migration routes and very skewed and uneven access to protection, we cannot just go back and pretend we now, you know, we unknow it now. There is a problem. Where can Afghan girls seek protection if they need to? Will we now seize the moment to actually expand resettlement options, safe pathways for Afghan girls and other girls or boys in other contexts that at the moment obviously do not have access to protection, whether by not physically reaching it or by just having no avenue and their voices and their needs just are not heard, are not noted and as a result are not met.
0: Katie there with UNICEF's Verena Knaus. My thanks to both of them for this wake-up call about just how many unaccompanied children are on the move today, seeking safety outside their home country. For more details on the UN Children's Fund report, just search online for uncertain pathways. Now it's time for some closing thoughts from Solange Bejotege-Cortez. Hi Solange, I know that with Afghanistan in the spotlight, your thoughts are with all those in the country.
3: Hola Daniel. Yes, I wish all the girls in the world had wings to fly, especially Afghan girls. I would like them to be swallows so they migrate far, far away. But reality has only given them short wings and girls face uncertain pathways. Do you know why swallows migrate even if it is the wrong season? Because it's cold and they are looking for food. For some girls, migration is a way to escape from drugs. For others, is a strategy to avoid a forced marriage. How much do we know about inequality between boys and girls on the move? What do the girls who stay in Afghanistan do? Where are they? Why is it so difficult to collect data? Are they invisible swallows? In 2002, The Algerian novelist Yasmina Kadra wrote Les Hirondelles de Kabul, The Swallows of Kabul. Almost 20 years later, it seems that this is a time that has not gone away. The novel tells the story of two Afghan couples under the Taliban regime. One character says, we have all been killed. It was so long ago that we forgot it. And when the author writes about how few women there are out in public under the Taliban, he alludes to swarms of decaying swallows who only make a dull sound when they pass near men. Today, the last swallows hide in Kabul and they will never see spring again unless we keep asking uncomfortable questions, as Verena Knaus pointed out. But we also need to spread our humanitarian wings urgently.
0: Thank you, Solange. So many UN agencies in the past week or so have said that they will stay and serve the people of Afghanistan where they can after the Taliban takeover. Many UN aid organisations have been in Afghanistan for decades and they really are not about to leave. Finally, the UN Secretary-General António Guterres announced earlier this week that a flash appeal for Afghanistan will be launched to cover the most immediate needs. But for this to happen, let's remember what Mr Guterres asked of member states. First, to dig deep for the people of Afghanistan. He asked them to provide timely, flexible and comprehensive funding so that the neediest people in crisis get help immediately, which is a key humanitarian principle, of course. And Mr Guterres also called on those states with Influence inside Afghanistan to ensure that aid workers have sustained access and all the legal safeguards that they need to stay and deliver over and above those in international humanitarian law. That's all we have time for. My thanks to Katie Dartford for all her hard work sniffing out stories for this week's show and also for UN News which you can catch online anytime and to you Solange for being here remotely once again.
3: Ciao Daniel, ciao Kate.
0: Thank you, listeners, for taking an interest in the United Nations. We do appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now. Hello again. Before I sign off, here's news of a brand new audio series you might like. It's the UN Climate Podcast, no denying it. It features young climate changemakers from across our warming planet who show us how we can make a positive impact in our daily lives. Listen in, wherever you get your podcasts, every Thursday from the 26th of August.
2: Young people, from the first time in several centuries, they don't believe that their life will be better than their father's. There's no denying it. Stopping climate change is simple. We need to stop digging up fossil fuels and burning them just to get energy. Our current climate crisis is directly linked to colonization when we think of colonization as a system that's always thinking about extraction.
3: It's hard to focus on individual rights or our wealth inequality if literally they can't breathe the air or there's fires pushing them out of their communities or their home.
2: Quitting our addiction to fossil fuels is going to take solutions in every industry at every scale in every nation on the planet.
0: It's not because of CO2, it's because we approached the planet with an unbalanced worldview. And so of course, eventually, the world became unbalanced. So if we can take some lessons and teachings from indigenous cultures, if we as individuals can hold a balanced view in our minds, then it's just a matter of time before the world balances as well.
3: Our vision is to be able to replicate this process in every part of the world that there is sea and fishermen. It
1: made you understand your place better, made you feel really humble and want to work a lot to preserve the well-being of this planet that has existed so many ages.
2: No denying it, the UN Climate Action Podcast brings you the voices of young climate change makers from across our warming planet. These activists, engineers, and entrepreneurs show us how we can make big changes in our homes, our jobs, where we vote and pray,
1: and with our family and friends. I believe everyone is putting this world for a purpose. And my purpose was always to create a dent in the universe by impacting the environment space. That is my purpose.
2: We all have to start somewhere, but the important thing is to get started. There's no denying it. Find No Denying It, the United Nations Climate Action Podcast, wherever you listen.